Hi, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and today my guest is Patrick Miller, who has been a Bitcoiner since 2013, likes to write articles about Bitcoin, and he also does Bitcoin meetups in his city. And hi, Patrick. I guess my first question for you is going to be about how you have changed your opinion about Bitcoin in the five years that you have been involved? Thanks for having me, Vlad. Um, my opinion about Bitcoin is in, uh, in the last five years has changed. Um, really, my understanding of Bitcoin has changed a lot. I, for a long time, didn't really understand um, the, the really important factor about Bitcoin, which is monetary sovereignty, personal sovereignty, uh, personal responsibility, low time preference. So when I first got into the Bitcoin space, I, like many others, was sort of confused about what it was useful for. Uh, I thought, you know, was it good for payments? Was it, was the blockchain some like database that could be used for applications and of all types? Um, and over time I came to realize that none of these things matter at all. If you don't have a secure store of value uh, that you can hold for the long term. Um, uh, that can be cannot be censored. That is essentially unconfiscatable. So I now today have a different point of view about Bitcoin than I did five years ago. Uh, I do see Bitcoin as the ultimate hedge. It's, I, I like to refer to it as the people's hedge. Yeah, I guess this change of narrative has also helped. As before, we had that hard fork where the Bitcoin Cash side was created and all the Keynesians who wanted to spend their Bitcoin went to a different chain and started their own project. We didn't have much development in this regard. And now we get to maintain the main qualities that we appreciate about Bitcoin and develop a second layer that's meant to serve that merchant adoption purpose that we also hope that we can achieve. But even if that fails, it's fine because we, we retain these qualities of immutab not immutability, uncensorability and unconfiscatability, if these are even words. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We don't actually know how it's all going to play out. So it makes a lot more sense to, to do optimizations before trying to scale up. Uh, I like the terminology. Uh, first, you scale down then you scale out and then you scale up. And that is exactly what I think the, the Bitcoin developers are doing. They are optimizing um, for the main chain. They're packing as much as they can into the smallest amount of space, um, which allows for a large amount of social scalability. It means that a lot more people can use the blockchain um, and they can interact directly with the blockchain by downloading it. Uh, and they can, uh, you know, and this, and this is a way that this is the way that we onboard millions and billions of people um, over the long term is creating uh, solutions that scale socially as well as technically. Yeah. And I guess when you first got into Bitcoin, also the figures and the most influential people around were different. You had Jeff Garzik and Gavin and Reeson. And I guess Roger Veer was still considered to be Bitcoin Jesus and the guy who really helps spread the word about the gospel of Satoshi. Yeah, the people who were doing the real Bitcoin work at the time, um, you know, Bitcoin, 
Um, a lot of the development was dis- was discussed on the mailing list. Um, it was very it's highly technical. It was being discussed on IRC. Um, and so it was kind of hidden away. Um, a lot of the, dis- there was discussion on bitcointalk.org. Um, but you know, the, the, a lot of the people that were really technically involved in Bitcoin were not the people that you might've seen right away. A lot of the people that you saw right away, if you came to the space back then where, yeah, you saw the, you saw the Roger Beers and you saw the people that were, that were out there sort of marketing and they were, um, they were promoting Bitcoin in the way that at the time that they thought it was made sense. Um, and maybe at that time it did make sense to do that, but um, they, they didn't properly adjust their expectations as we learn more information. So as we learn more information about scalability and about uh, both technical scalability and social scalability, um, you have to adapt and change uh, your, the way you look at things. Uh, we also now, you know, just, have an intuitive sense that um, it, people don't really want to spend their bitcoins. A lot of people want to hold their bitcoins uh, um, because in order to obtain bitcoin, they they have to go buy it on an exchange, or you know, it's 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 still difficult to use, um, and it could be problematic to use it in many countries. Um, and the early cases of using bitcoin, we saw that it was used primarily on the internet uh, to purchase things from the Silk Road. So it made it made a lot of sense as an internet currency. Um, in those early days, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that useful or practical for in-person payments at your local store, for example. One of the discussions that I have with my friends sometimes when it comes to Bitcoin is about ideology. And I have a background in political science and some of my university colleagues are Marxists and find themselves on the left side of the debate. And they say that Bitcoin is only for libertarians and anarcho-capitalists who want to get away from the government. And I sometimes like to think that there's so much more to it than this ideal of getting away from the government. And I, I guess it's a problem of our generation, first of all as the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're a millennial or you consider yourselves to be one, but our generation tends to be more open to the idea of government intervention, while our parents were more libertarian and they did not want the government to get into their affairs and they were learning in school to protect their liberty and try to stay away as much as possible from the government that is trying to grow and extend its branches to all all that concerns society and everything that concerns economics yeah i think um that well i think a lot of people like to attribute economic prosperity to like central banking or the financial system that um that was maybe promoted by central banks, but this doesn't really, this is a, I think a, a myopic way to look at the world. And actually we, when we look at technological progress, we see that technology was the primary driver of prosperity and innovation, not fiat currency. Um, I think that today's generation of millennials and Gen Xers, um, uh, I'm sort of on the early end of the millennials. I'm like one of the first probably millennials that they would call that, um, the um 
they don't you know this generation my generation and the and the uh younger generation they don't have a way to get in they don't have a way to store value um in a way that's reliable they don't have investment opportunities like real estate that their parents had um, they don't have bank accounts that produce a decent interest rate they don't have a stock market that isn't manipulated today's all of today's markets are clearly bubbles. It does not really take um, a genius to look at the current prices for property and housing uh, and all sorts of assets out there and know that you're automatically priced, pretty much priced out of these things in today's generation. It will take you a lifetime. And not only that, um, you're most, you know, our generation is also incredibly encumbered by student loan debt, especially in the United States. Student loan debt is absolutely crippling this generation um we, this is a generation that will probably never own property probably will never be able to invest in retirement um, they have very limited opportunities for hedging themselves against um, calamity uh, so bitcoin is one of the few options that today's generation has to protect their wealth um, and that's the way i look at it yeah th that makes a lot of sense but when you think about it i think that our parents and our grandparents would be much more open to the idea of Bitcoin as a currency that is not created by any government and is not under the control of any government and no government can confiscate it. So if you present these three qualities to baby boomers and Gen Xers, then I guess they would be more excited and more open to this idea. Whereas digital money is not all that exciting and I guess you get most of the services with the credit card and they have been using credit cards, I guess, since the 60s. Yeah, in today's, in today's generation, they have Venmo and they have Cash App and they have these payment apps in China. They have WeChat and other applications, Alipay. They already have the applications that allow them to transfer money um, you know, very quickly. Um, yes, these systems are like centralized, um, however, that's irrelevant for their purposes. Um, you know, the vast majority of people today can go about their daily lives and they can earn money and they can go make payments. Um, and they don't have an issue with that. What they have an issue with is losing money, uh, due to monetary manipulation. So over time, their money loses value because of inflation. Um, I think you're right that the baby boomer generation, they, ex they actually experienced this in the United States more than our generation. The current generation of Americans my age and younger are totally insulated and have no idea. They, they have very little understanding of monetary economics. They don't understand the problems that have occurred in the developing world. They don't understand what hyperinflation is. Um, they don't understand these things. Uh, they also don't have any desire to have personal responsibility um, and they definitely don't want to protect their own money. They want something that's secure, uh, so theoretically secure and that it's insured by their government. Um, and yeah, I, I don't actually know necessarily why this is the case, but I simply think that um, it's probably partially an education problem. I simply think that people are not taught to ask the questions they should be asking. Also, I guess it's the fact that Bitcoin can look very intimidating for newbies. When you first come around, you, you discover about this project, which in which if you ever lose your 
keys, you're not going to get access to your co coins, unlike the bank account where you can just go to the bank office and present your personal ID and get the PIN number to your credit card. There is no such service in Bitcoin and you have to take responsibility for your keys and your sovereignty. And yeah. I guess this concept can be intimidating for a lot of people. And also the lack of a proper understanding that I guess nobody really can claim to have unless you are one of the OG cypherpunks and have gotten involved since 2009. As I have spoken to Udi Wertheimer, who was also on this podcast a few days ago. And I think the first conversation that I ever had with him was about the fact that he still considers himself to be a Bitcoin noob in the sense that he just keeps on learning. Whenever he discovers a new dimension, which enlarges his perspective on the matter, he realizes that the opinions that he had a few months ago or a few years ago are more or less wrong and he just keeps on learning about it. So this idea that you keep on learning about an asset that is not issued by any government and cannot be censored can be very divisive and intimidating. It's not for everyone, but it should be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, to his point, he's totally correct that I am not an expert in Bitcoin and no matter how long you've been in Bitcoin, I don't think um, you know, you can ever say you're an expert per se. There are a handful of people that understand the protocol very, very well. I wouldn't even necessarily say they are experts per se, and I don't think they would claim they are experts. Um, anytime you ever hear anyone who says they're a Bitcoin or blockchain expert, that's a huge red flag. Um, now, the other, I want to go to this point about securing private keys. I believe that securing private keys is the most important um, issue, and it's the it's the biggest problem that we face in the the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space. Um, and this is, you know, this is a problem that you will never hear any, certainly never hear anybody in the altcoin space talk about. Um, but it's a problem that Bitcoiners are acutely aware of and solutions, um, you know, some great solutions that are coming down the pike are partially signed Bitcoin transactions, um, Musig, a very advanced multi-signature um, schemas. So anyone, you know, a lot of people are, are constantly like, they, they're like, well, when are we going to get, when is Bitcoin going to go mainstream? Or how do we make it, how do we make the user interface so easy for everyone to use that, you know, any dummy can use it? Well, I'm sorry to tell them, but that's never going to happen. Um, if you want to use Bitcoin and, and actually use it and, and store your value in it, you absolutely need to understand what private keys are. You need to understand how to secure your keys. Uh, you need to understand that the, the, the best ways to do that is multi-signature. Um, you need to store your own version of, you need to basically store the blockchain yourself. Um, so yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who want this technology to go mainstream, but you know, mainstream to me is just like, I don't really care about those people. If, if they don't, if they're not interested in personal responsibility and they're not willing to take the time to understand how to secure their wealth, they definitely should not be buying Bitcoin. I guess the process was also simplified with the seed words that we have in several implementations for wallets, but it's still yeah. difficult. This idea that you have to keep these words on a piece of paper that you can only multiply up to the extent that it doesn't get in the wrong hands. And you have to make sure that you always have a copy or personally, I'm not a fan of memorizing the words as I think in terms of 
what if somebody follows me home and tortures me or right. does stuff to me and they're not going to leave me alone until I told them the word. So I, I'm not going to memorize them. I guess this is part of my personal security measures. But I, I don't hold them in these pieces of paper that you get from a ledger or from a casa note either. You know, they, they give you these talk pieces of carton on which you can write your seed words. And that's way too predictable. Yes. If yes. somebody who is a Bitcoiner comes into your house and sees like a small box where you store your ledger, there are very high chances for you to also have some other piece of evidence to point out your private key in there. That's bad security. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are, you know, I think anyone who follows um, uh, Jameson Lop knows that, yeah, security and privacy are incredibly important. Um, these are like operational security is incredibly difficult with Bitcoin. Uh, you know, one of, you know, a lot of people say, well, we need to bank the unbanked in these other countries. Okay, well, that's great. But if these people don't have a secure place to even store a seed phrase, then it's all pointless anyways. Um, they, you know, the services that what Jameson Lop is working on with Casa Hoddle is a sovereignty as a service, which is a multi-signature service. Um, these are incredibly important services that are being developed. Um, you know, but the user interface and the applications and the security needs to be developed over time to make it easier for people to use multi-signature. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that, you know, just you, you store your, just storing your private key in your house and, or, you know, you're on some seed phrase is not necessarily um, the most secure way to do it either. Um, and so it, it, it is a huge challenge. And I do see this again, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the, my primary concerns and the primary challenges with being in this space um, and using cryptocurrencies is securely storing your private keys um, and not having to trust other people um, because, like you said, you can make copies of the seed phrase. Um, you could split your seed phrase, which can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but handing out a, you know, if you if, if your seed phrase is in two locations at once, and um, but you cannot physically be in two locations at once, then you cannot know if your seed phrase has been compromised. Um, the same thing is true if you split your seed phrase and you have half here and half somewhere else. You don't know if someone's obtained that other half. With that half, they now have potentially um, the ability to, um, to decrypt your entire seed phrase if they can you know, iterate on it enough with the proper software. Um, they could crack that private key. Um, um, so... Yeah, private, you know, key security is a huge problem. Fortunately, we have a lot of smart people working on this. Um, Cold Card Wallet um, by Rodolfo Novak in Canada, who's also the, the creator of OpenDime through his company CoinKite. Uh, they're working on incredibly important products. Um, and companies like Jameson's Lops, um, Casa Hoddle, and then you have the Samurai Wallet, Dojo Node, but uh, and then you have all these these companies that make these hardware uh, or these seed phrase, you know, hard uh, uh, metallic ways to store your seed phrase. These are all these are all important technologies that allow people to store their stuff. Um, but again, you you really do, like you mentioned, you really do need a secure location to store this. And putting it in your brain is not necessarily the, the safest and secure way to do it either. I think it's also a lot better than holding all of your cash in your house. But I've also heard of people who, I'm not sure who it was, but if I think very hard, I can remember 
there was news about somebody holding his private keys in a bank account, but in the kind of bank safe that you get with your account and you get to store your belongings with a key that you only, only you possess. That's kind of ironic to use the services of banks to store your private keys. I think it is ironic and I think it's very dangerous. Yeah, of course it's dangerous. It's a trusted third party. <laughs> but then again, even software that is not open source and not consulted by or verified by cryptography and computer science experts, that's dangerous. And I, I think very recently we have seen a hack in Coinomi wallet where they there was this API from Google which helped with the autocorrect part for the seed keys. And the data was sent to a Google server about the words that were typed for the seed key or seed phrase. And somebody has hacked into the wallet and stole about, I think it was $60,000 worth of Bitcoin, which is insane if you think about it. There's, there was this small security hole which was caused by a trusted third party in, in this case, Google autocorrect services and you had this engineer on the other end who got the words and figured out maybe that they grant access to a wallet. Right. And all he had to do was just input these and move the money away and that's it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You, you don't hear a lot of people talking about this out in the wild. You don't, you don't hear these uh, stories, but they are very real and they're, and they're, it's dangerous. In fact, just using Bitcoin out in the wild exposes you to risks like this. And this is one of the reasons why I'm very, very particular about the hardware and software that I use is because this isn't a game and all these, you know, this is, this is why altcoins are in career are even more dangerous because the software that these altcoins are using are even less. They're, they're, they're reviewed by almost nobody. Almost nobody is actually reviewing the code. Um, and actually knows all these risks. And so you can, you know, yeah, you can support like, you know, your wallet, Coinomi can support like 500 altcoins, but none of that matters um, when you can't store anything securely on it in the first place. Um, there's been a number of exchanges that have been hacked because they, you know, as we know, um, even some who they were hacked because they implemented an altcoin and they didn't review the code and the altcoin itself contained an exploit that <laughs> um, that was used to, ex to steal money from the exchange. Um, among, among all the other ways that you can lose your money from exchanges. But um, yeah, there's, there's so many possible ways that things can go bad in the crypto space that, uh, again, I, I don't recommend people buy Bitcoin if, they're not, if they don't first learn about how to secure it properly. So that's usually where I start is I usually actually try to I start by actually trying to scare them into understanding how what they are really storing, like what they're really holding here is there, there's, there's no, there's nobody there to bail them out if they, if they're not, if they make the wrong move. So it's an every man for himself world in that sense. Oh yeah. That's why sometimes I recommend people to buy some kind of altcoin to learn about how wallets work. So if you lose like $20 worth of Dogecoin or Litecoin or, or Bitcoin cash, I don't think that's going to matter in the grand scheme of things. I don't feel like you're losing too much and it doesn't influence the supply of Bitcoin. <laughs> so right. Cause more coins to be lost. 
we know that we have gold and we also have smaller projects which may just be like stones that you throw at people and you try to present them as valuable to some fools who might buy them. But if, if you learn with altcoins about wallets and about exchanges and about security, that's useful to move to Bitcoin. So uh, sometimes I think that altcoins that are not necessarily malevolent and that can be found on any exchange can be great gateway drugs to Bitcoin. I like that you refer to them as gateway drugs because that's kind of the way I like to think of them as well. Um, and that's why I don't really mind if people use them early on because I think they're going to get burned no matter what. And But at least they will learn a lot along the way and at least hopefully they didn't lose any Bitcoins. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I talk to people. I mean, I have done some copywriting for the Litecoin Foundation and found some really nice people who are enthusiastic and they see a lot of value in Litecoin, which I no longer see personally. I can understand the criticism. I, I can see why they decided to implement confidential transactions with Mimblewimble as there was really nothing special about Litecoin after... It had that phase of testing SegWit and doing some tests with the Lightning Network, which right now has almost no development for Litecoin. So right. they need to stand out some way and provide something that Bitcoin doesn't already have. And it's great that they experiment with Mimblewimble as we might get that into Bitcoin at some point in the future. So it's an interesting experiment that whose results are very useful for the digital goal that we know and love. Yeah, who knows? You know, well, first of all, we'll see if that's even possible for them to implement extension blocks for Mimblewimble. Um, and that's fine if they want to experiment with that. Um, I, I have a serious problem with them promoting it as something of, you should use for storing money because that's incredibly dangerous to be storing money in something that's going to be used for something highly experimental. Um, in an industry that's already dangerous to be using these <laughs> software. So, um, you know, but again, I, I agree that that's, that that's exactly where, that's exactly what, if altcoins are going to be used for, that's what they should be used for. Uh, as we have talked before, um, I take no issue with experimentation. Uh, I just have problems with marketing primarily with altcoins. Oh yeah. And sometimes I, that side of marketing makes people huddle the wrong coins and I remember that whole situation with Grin when it was first launched and they thought it's the new Bitcoin and they put a lot of Bitcoins into it on decentralized exchanges. And they got wrecked because the supply makes sure that you should send Grin as fast as possible so it retains the same value in Bitcoin or else you're going to get wrecked. And there is no point to huddle it as it keeps inflating at a rate that I don't think there will ever be any kind of massive profits for those who invested. Mm -hmm. But it's this cypherpunk invention that's meant to be private and quick. It's made for people who transact in a private way and don't care about huddling. It has an infinite supply, just like Monero, and you, you're not supposed to hold it. That's the whole point. <clears throat> But people just see a speculative investment in 
anything, but they forget about this aspect of scarcity, which is an, an important factor which grants anything value. Yeah. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind is even something that doesn't, even something that has a supply cap, like the Beam version of, of Mimblewimble um, or, you know, Ripple or whatever, or Litecoin, they have supply caps, but that, that doesn't really matter when you consider that long term they're not secure. They could fork, they will fork. Um, there will be new, new versions, there will be new altcoins created that will be marketed to do exactly what those altcoins are doing today. Um, so this idea of digital scarcity, um, um, you know, we have to think about it long, long term, if these projects can actually maintain or could actually be decentralized, which I don't believe they can be. Um, and in my article um, about altcoin um, scams, basically, I explained that, that um, they can't be scarce. And, and the only altcoins um, that are actually decentralized are already dead because the only successful altcoins are altcoins that have been marketed by a marketing team. Um, they've had people behind them who ex- spend an extraordinary amount of resources marketing them in order to profit from them. Um, and so you, you continue to see today that the primary altcoins, you know, are, are you know, Ethereum, Ripple, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, you know, Tron, etc. You look at those ones, they, they are centralized because they are marketed by centralized companies if they, and organizations. If they weren't being marketed, they would have already died a long time ago, which means that they can't, they can't be decentralized. If they were decentralized, then they would have nobody running them and they would wither away. On this podcast, I usually like to talk about political topics and world politics and how Bitcoin influences it. And from this marketing point of view that you mentioned, I can understand why the U.S. government hates Bitcoin and probably tries as hard as it can to promote American companies that have projects like XRP that can be controlled and can be leveraged and can be turned into something that respects every kind of regulation. And I think Zcash is also from this kind of category as they stated that they want to be private by not serving criminals, which I don't think makes any sense. How, how can you be private and provide true confidential transactions between parties if you are able to rule out the bad actors from the good ones? That, that doesn't make any sense. It just means that they have some kind of trapping involved. But I sometimes think that Bitcoin, even though it's an American invention, and if you look at the white paper, you're going to see a lot of names of American cryptographers who laid the foundations for this invention to get released. Mm-hmm. And even though it's American in its spirit and in its developments, it works against the interest of the United States in terms of foreign politics, as I don't think they would ever want Venezuela to get any money. They wouldn't want Palestine to get any money. They wouldn't want North Korea to get money. And that's why they have international embargoes and a whole international system that they control and leverage however they please. And they can make their allies not engage into trade with the countries that they don't like, which in a sense is unfair, if you ask me. We should allow markets to be free and we should 
we should not just put people in a situation of poverty just because we don't like our, their leaders. Mm -hmm. Like it happens with Venezuela, which actually is a very rich country in resources. So I think the cypherpunks who laid the foundation of Bitcoin actually see something greater than the vision of the United States in terms of foreign policy. But at the same time, I sometimes stop and wonder, are we actually serving the Russian foreign interests as Bitcoin seems to be very compatible with whatever they're planning for the world politics? For, uh, for who? The, the Russian, you said? Yeah, the Russians. I mean, there was even that rumor that Vladimir Putin was interested in purchasing some Bitcoins. And Russia is under scrutiny for invading Crimea, which took place, I think, in 2016. And they have been under very strong financial sanctions and they're not able to engage in trade for several resources with the European Union and United States and all of their allies. And it makes a lot of sense for the leader of this big world power to try to use a mean which bypasses this international banking system. Mm -hmm. So yeah, at this point in time, we can say that Bitcoin is more favorable to Russia than it is to the United States, but it's neutral. So the situation can change at any point in time. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about this um, is that Bitcoin empowers individuals, obviously, to opt out, but it also empowers any entity to opt out um, on a large scale. And um, I think you make an excellent point, and I definitely agree with you that, um, you know, financial sanctions on other countries as a way of as a way of waging war is um, is incredibly hypocritical for a country that claims that free markets are what liberal liberal you know liberate or liberalize uh, societies. Um, you can't, on one hand, you know, like promote democracy and freedom, and then on the other hand, you don't allow people to trade with each other. So you're essentially you're essentially punishing the population, um, and because you don't agree with their leadership, um, and not only that, their leadership doesn't even have a chance to even succeed when they don't have an access to a financial system. So it's a catch twenty two. These many of these countries are in, um, they, it doesn't matter if, even if they have good in, you know, good intentions, um, they can't even, they can't even try to prove that because they are already locked out of the existing financial system. So they're already being, um, you know, they're being punished. The population is being punished. Um, it's unfair. Um, it's not fair competitive practices. Um, and it is, I mean, the financial system today is the primary method of, of warfare, in my opinion. Um, yeah, there is physical warfare, bombs and, and missiles and troops. Um, however, <clears throat> the financial warfare is almost more debilitating uh, because it's incredibly easy to, to, you know, shut down an economy and then, you know, use a bunch of propaganda to try to convince that population that, the reason that their country is failing is because of their leadership. When in actuality, they simply don't have access to the financial system, um, and they cannot engage in fair trade across borders. Um, yeah, this is a sort of cognitive dissonance that most Americans don't even understand. Uh, most people, you know, I, I don't interact with anybody on a regular basis who cares about these things or even understands them. 
Um, however, I think that people in other countries uh, definitely understand this problem and they are, in a way, you know, it's kind of ironic. I think that the more you, the more that as, now that Bitcoin is available to these countries for moving value across borders, um, it's sort of like the United States is slowly digging its own grave because the, the more that we repress these countries, the more we actually push them into Bitcoin and into systems that they will be able to use to transact with each other outside of the existing monetary system. Um, and so control of the monetary system, there is absolutely no doubt that has been the primary um, method of controlling nation states um, by the West for the last hundred years. Knowing what the United States has done in Latin America with Pinochet during the Nixon administration, I think that in some ways, maybe that it's better to impose financial sanctions than actually get involved with your secret service and military. But then again, I don't think there is any right or wrong way. I, I'm all for peace and peaceful <clears throat> methods and you should not kill civilians just because you want you don't like somebody's government. But at the same time, you can argue that you kill their civilians by starving them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, you know, one of the one of the problems really with that also is the this organization called the International Monetary Fund, which um, is a essentially acts as a bank to these countries um, by providing them with loans. Um, but when they get these loans from the International Monetary Fund, they come with very, very strong strings attached. And so when the Monetary Fund provides these countries with a loan, it is typically required in the contract that these loans have to be used um, to pay American companies or foreign companies um, to do the work. And it gives these countries access to the resources of that country. So many, many countries in Latin America have taken IMF loans, um, which are essentially, it's impossible for them to pay them back without giving up sovereignty. And so um, even, even when these, even when we put in place a government supposedly that we, that is, um, you know, pro-Western government or whatever you want to call it, even if we put in place a pro-Western government, uh, we can still undermine that government by in, essentially you know, enslaving the population with an, a, a, a huge loan that these countries have to pay off, um, but they can't pay off. And the only way they could pay them off would be to keep selling off their resources. Um, and so over time, this creates a lot of problems because the populations of these countries, they, these, you know, the, they, don't, they don't get access to the resources. They, the resources end up getting sold to other countries uh, and moved over and pushed overseas. Um, so, you know, um, and in the United States, definitely, I mean, if you look at Iran um, back in the 1950s, right, the, you know, the government then was actually very pro-Western um, prior to um, the Shah of, when the Shah of Iran was put in power um, prior to 1952, um, the governments in the Middle East were actually very pro-Western. They were very modern and, um, but they were also becoming popular and they were also taking control of their resources. And so it's really a battle for resources. Um, and that is primarily why these countries have taken these loans uh, is they need the money and in order to get the money, they have to give up their resources. And that is, you know, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, it's, why is the United States so interested in Venezuela? The only reason the United States is interested in Venezuela is because 
Venezuela has a lot of oil, and that's very obvious. Yeah, but I guess this is part of the agreement which was made after World War II, when they decided that it's better to have this kind of world order that is based on economic cooperation as opposed to building armies and trying to deter the other or threaten your neighbor with the kind of military power that you have. And I guess we have entrusted the freedom of the world in the hands of the United States. And they even had an antagonist on the other side of the world, which was totalitarian and did not give any kind of freedoms. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess it's getting more ambiguous as the United States is not as free as it used to be. But it's not like Russia is any better. Or I come from a country which is very close to Russia. And we like to say that if the United States gives up on protecting us tomorrow, then the Russians can actually take over and conquer us in a matter of weeks, maybe days. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a problem. And, and, I, and I'm not trying to say any of these countries are innocent by any means or any of these leaders are innocent. But um, I think that the problem of monetary sovereignty, the problem essentially of you know, control of a country's money supply and central banking, um, it destroys countries across the planet and it destroys societies across the planet because fundamentally people need a way to store value and save money. And you know, that's true in any society, no matter what country you're in. Um, And yeah, I think Bitcoin is a threat to every single government, not Western and Eastern and whatever you want, because it does, it does take away their power to control the individual and to, um, and, but however, you know, the Bitcoin can also be used for, um, for doing transactions between countries. There's talk about Iran using Bitcoin for making payments to other countries, you know, in the old days they used gold. Um, but gold is very easy to censor, and we've already seen that. And so, you know, there's problems. You need to move 50 tons of gold. You need to, you know, a uh, billion dollars worth of gold. If you need to move that between countries, that's incredibly difficult to move that much gold. And if you have to move it with paper, then you're just trusting that that gold actually exists um, and that they're actually going to redeem that gold if it was ever needed to be redeemed. So Bitcoin solves a pretty clear problem for central banking. Uh, there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin space that um, they subscribe to the, the Nashian theory of money. Um, and, I'm, you know, it, there's a lot of arguments about what is ideal money. But, you know, I think that we actually don't know. We actually don't know what the social and political repercussions of Bitcoin are yet. You know, we, we don't yet actually know. I think we will have a better idea of that when the first country actually starts officially hoarding Bitcoin um, as part of their central bank policy, um, that is when the day, that is when things will really change. Uh, up until that point, um, we don't know if, con- if countries are already stockpiling Bitcoin. It very, it's very possible that countries like Russia are already mining Bitcoin and we don't know it yet. Yeah, I guess that's frightening when you think about it. As we can have very powerful nation states that can have a big chunk of coins and they have a lot of leverage and they control a lot of bitcoins i think we heard news about north korea trying to bypass their international trade embargoes by mining bitcoin and then dumping it on exchanges to make some dollars but i think at this point in time when we speak 
it's the hardest that it ever was to actually buy some Bitcoin in a way that you don't submit all of your personal data. Yeah. And it, the, the original purpose has been defeated in terms of commerce, unless you resort to methods like CoinJoin with Wasabi Wallet or whatever. Right. And if you just want to get $100 worth of Bitcoin, it's very difficult to not do it with your ID in some kind of KYC environment. And it's an international trend. It's not just in the United States. All the exchanges are required to ask for even more information. I think last week I, I read something about Bitstamp, which is a very reputed and respected exchange from Europe, asking way too many questions about you and what you are planning to do with your Bitcoin and how much you are about to invest. And that, that's insane. Why, why do they even care? They have your name, they have your personal data, they know your address. Why, why do they care what you do with your money after? Yeah, I think this is a huge problem. Um, KYC, AML exchanges, um, they are following the laws and they are businesses that make money off fees for people trading. So um, unfortunately, they're going to market to newcomers and they're going to pull newcomers in who are going to give up their personal information in order to obtain Bitcoin um, or any cryptocurrency. And they don't understand that they've already given up some of their freedom and privacy. Um, that information is will be available to the government. We've already seen Coinbase sub submit um, lists of users to um, the international, or excuse me, the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS in the United States, um, requested, you know, um, documentation on who are the traders who have traded more than $20,000 worth of Bitcoin, and Coinbase gave them a list, uh, essentially. Um, and so if you didn't pay your taxes uh, in that year and you used uh, Coinbase, it's very possible that you'll be getting contacted by the IRS. Um, so on one hand, I think that there's there's the privacy issue, um, I mean, it's a problem because now you have to trust that all the people that work at this company have access to your data. They know where you live. They know your name. Uh, they can come to your house if they, if you know, or they can tell a friend or they could sell your data, um, to somebody else uh, on the black market who will then use that data in a malicious way. Um, there's so many problems. That's why, um, I'm really excited for companies like Azteco. Um, if you're familiar with Azteco, um, azte.co, but they have developed, um, and they've been spending a long time on developing a, a voucher redemption service that allows um, you to, you know, to anybody to essentially um, to redeem Bitcoin just using a, a code. Um, and the whole, the whole idea for their platform is that you don't, you can, you don't need to submit KYC AML documentation. Now it will depend on the local regulations, but the general idea is that, um, is that you can, all you need to get that Bitcoin in your wallet is you just need that redemption code and you need to put an address into one field and you click the button and you've got the Bitcoin. So you could give, you could buy, you could buy a voucher for somebody else and give them that voucher and that other person could redeem the voucher. Um, and so it opens up a lot of opportunities for people to provide services who are going to be middlemen, uh, who, who are willing to give up some of their, um, maybe their in, in identifying information or to be that middleman. Um, and then, of course, there's BISC, B-I-S-Q, Exchange, which is a decentralized um, 
application essentially that our marketplace that allows you people to um, to buy and sell Bitcoin locally uh, in in you know physically in front of each other uh, and and trade as well as um, and just in various ways without having to use a centralized exchange that requires KYC AML. Uh, and just, just as we were talking earlier about private keys being an important problem, uh, KYC AML is another big problem. Um, actually, this is one of the more terrifying things about the um, Craig Wright is that he seems to be totally okay with, um, he seems to totally trust governments and the governments and people that work in governments have our interests at heart. And that's, that's actually terribly frightening, especially in a world where, um, you know, if you have to submit information about yourself and you own Bitcoin to a service and the people that you submitted your, your information to know that you have Bitcoin, that's, that's a huge risk. I agree with you. And I also don't like the idea that right now on local, local Bitcoins, you find a lot of people who prefer to, use credit cards for transfers. So instead of meeting in person in a public space and exchanging a certain amount of Bitcoin for the corresponding amount in cash, they resort to this easy but ultimately flawed method of using credit cards, which actually enable all the KYC process yeah, it's a, it's definitely a problem. Um, I definitely prefer, would, you know, I think that services like Azteco voucher services make more sense because um, it's much easier. So, you know, so all you need is a little terminal to print a receipt and you need to just, and then, you know, you take cash from that person and then you print them a voucher and then they, um, they just redeem that voucher. So part of it's a software technological problem, but the other part of it is a regulatory and a, um, sort of like social re-education problem. Like people have become too accustomed to just giving away data. I mean, it's, it's so common now you go somewhere and you, you know, you like, you want to like, let's say you want to just go like, go to the gym and, and like use the gym. And they're like, well, we need your address to use the gym. And you're like, why do you need my address for me to use your gym? I just want to pay you to use the gym. Why do I need to give you my address? Uh, everyone has become so accustomed to taking personal data from people um, and people have become so accustomed to giving personal data to people, they don't ask questions like, why does this person need my personal data? They don't need your personal data. Stop giving your personal data away. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem um, because if, you're, if that's hacked, then uh, they now have access to all your information. Uh, and you're just generally giving your information to people that you don't know. You don't know who they are. You don't know who works for that company. Um, but anyways, just reiterating that point that, um, there, the problem is multifaceted there's, there's many, there's many problems essentially. I think Bitcoin without any kind of privacy measures is very Orwellian in itself. And if we get to this point where you need to get on a regulated exchange and buy your amount of Bitcoins with your ID and your credit card, and you have to confirm everything and hold onto their wallet and they know at all times what you're doing with your funds and i notice nowadays that if you want to close your coinbase account you have to make sure that every small amount of every cryptocurrency that you're holding is traded to another account so you are not able to escape this system and if we don't develop any kind of more advanced privacy measures then 
it's going to be much more Orwellian than the cashless society where everybody sends money via credit card and everything can be traced. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a problem on multi-levels because um, not only not only is it blockchain analysis, but you also have the the peer-to-peer protocol layer of Bitcoin and you have the peer-to-peer where you using your internet, you know, you have to be a savvy person. You have to know how to use VPN. You have to know how to use Tor. You have to know how to, you have to be very careful with um, what you access on what internet connection. Um, and, and when it comes to blockchain analysis, we do have some really great tools that are out now, like Wasabi Wallet. Um, you have Samurai Wallet that is now coming out with, um, you know, they're coming out with what's re- being referred to as PayJoin or P2EP, which is essentially a, a form of CoinJoin um, that allows, you know, two parties to get together and essentially mix their coins together in a way that um, nobody looking at that transaction knows that a coin join took place, and they also don't know what, who actually got those outputs. So we now have technology with Bitcoin that it is very possible to have privacy if you know what you're doing. Um, and for, and the, this will also be enhanced by something like the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network uses an encrypted uh, protocol called the, the Sphinx Protocol, um, and that, that protocol allows you to route payments over an encrypted network um, in which in where the, the hop, the initial hop um, and the final hop do not know the, the, the entire route of that payment. Um, and also it's not broadcast to any blockchain, so nobody will know. So, there, you know, when people say let's use the blockchain for payments, you know, well, number one, it doesn't scale. Number two, it's really stupid. It, it's, it's, you're like putting all your information out in the public. Why would you do that? Um, it's much better to use, um, yeah, if you, if, you, if, you, if you really want privacy in this, uh, you need to also learn how to handle your UTXOs. You need to know that um, you need to manage each individual transaction output and be careful with mixing your outputs together. Uh, again, this is something that, that Samurai Wallet and um, Electrum Wallet and other wallets have made it very easy for you to manage your UTXOs. Uh, most Bitcoin wallets don't have this feature, and people regularly combine transaction outputs, um, which are basically giving away their identity to people that know um, who that know about those initial outputs or inputs. So, you know, blockchain analysis um, it is being broken thanks to people like Samurai Wallet, Wasabi Wallet, um, Join Market. Um, these technologies are finally getting to the point where they are able to help users have more privacy. Uh, it really is a matter of time and education, and that's also another reason why there's no hurry to onboard everybody because the, we need more time to build these solutions. I think it's insane that there is so much money in this space and there are so many people who have an interest not for Bitcoin not to turn into something that can be tracked in terms of every small transaction that you can associate addresses with people and you can track everything but there is such a little amount of investments being made for development and research for greater fungibility and privacy and also it blows my mind when I think about it that Satoshi meant in terms of ensuring privacy for us to create a new Bitcoin address for every transaction that we make. So when we request a new payment, we generate a new 
address to have the money sent to it. I guess I might be wrong. I haven't read everything that Satoshi ever wrote, but as far as I can recall, this was the security model that he suggested. And if we blindly follow Satoshi's words, then we might just end up giving up our sovereignty and privacy. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a system where you need to know what you're doing. If you're going to, that's fine to generate. It's, it's better. It's a lot better than what Ripple and Ethereum are doing, uh, where you have an account-based system where it's very easy to reuse um, and your, your accounts. And, and, but however, with, um, with, with Bitcoin, having UTXOs, it, is, uh, it does have some advantages when it comes down to privacy in the sense that you can manage your individual transaction outputs. So if you want to, if you want to, if you have, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin in your wallet, as long as you're using a wallet that allows you to, to see those transaction outputs, you can select which ones you want to spend and you can spend those individual transaction outputs and generate change addresses. Um, yeah, I mean, most people don't, even people who have been in the crypto space for a long time, they don't have any, they don't even know what coin control is. They don't actually know what a UTXO is. They don't understand. Um, they don't understand what they're giving up by using something like Ripple, where um, where you have an account and uh, you you have to essentially reuse that same account over and over. Um, you know, because you've already put a deposit in, and you know you can't. In order, you'd have to create a new account every time. Uh, in, in a way, Satoshi's model was pretty novel at the time for what it did. Um, it wasn't perfect, but I think it has one advantage: is that that at least we have a, you know, with Bitcoin being a public blockchain, at least we can verify that there's no, there's no coins out there that are being created that we can't see. That's one problem with, you know, coins that are, or crypto, yeah, cryptocurrencies that are private by default is that we don't actually, it's very hard to validate that no, um, no cryptocurrencies were, were created that we can't see due to a bug or flaw which is a lot of the people have criticized Zcash um, because of this and also Ripple because the first 30,000, 32,000 ledger entries from Ripple are missing. Um, and also um, just in general, you know, people, it's, it, these are cryptographic, um, this is cryptographic technology that's, that's very young, it's very new. So, um, you know, putting a lot of money into something like Mimblewimble is probably pretty reckless right now because, um, it, you know, it's possible that it could be broken. Uh, there could be bugs in it that we don't know. There could be inflation bugs. You know, there was an inflation bug in Bitcoin that was discovered. Um, and that first one was fixed. And then there was another potential bug that could have caused inflation. So there are bugs even in public blockchains that could cause, that could allow people to inflate the supply. And, and if you have a private blockchain, or when I say private, I mean a blockchain that um, has privacy by default, um, there, that problem becomes potentially much more hard to, to track. Um, so I like the model I actually love the model of Bitcoin uh, as long as you know how to use it and you know how to use your UTXOs and you understand these new technologies like CoinJoin. Um, and then if you understand Lightning Network, you know, uh, that you can make payments between you and other people that aren't broadcast to the blockchain. Um, I think all these things are a really great step in the right direction. There's no silver bullet for this problem. There are many ways that people can... Um, give up their privacy. And just because you're using something like uh, Monero doesn't mean that you have privacy because it depends on how you use that cryptocurrency. Are you using a VPN? Are you using Tor? Where did you obtain that Monero from? Did you buy it from an exchange? Did you withdraw it to your wallet? Did you, uh, there's a lot of questions 
Um, did you send a payment to somebody who now has your address? I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems, right? Like the, the, that are the privacy, um, the around privacy that are not solved by any single silver bullet. Just look at us pretending to care so much about the technology when it's all about the gains, right? Maximizing <laughs> our USD and just investing in the first shitcoin we find on Binance and getting more BTC just to get more USD during the next bull run. Yeah, people just don't know. They don't, they don't, they don't know, right? Like so many newcomers, just, they just have no idea what they're buying and they don't actually know the game that's being played and they don't know the problems that are being solved. And so, and unfortunately, people have made a large amount of money, fortunes, many, you know, by telling people to buy altcoins and providing them an avenue to buy them and not explaining the risks. And this is something that you will see in the Bitcoin community. You've probably seen the Bitcoin community argues with each other a lot. Like, There's Bitcoiners are more ruthless towards their fellow Bitcoiners because everybody in Bitcoin is incredibly, um, they believe strongly in these things and they will fight to the death for these things. Um, you don't find these types of sentiments in altcoins. Typically, most altcoiners um, are going to be people who, who really, they, they don't actually understand these problems and they actually don't care about them. A lot of them are actually people who might preferably just trust a third party or trust a centralized entity. So, um, You know, these are, these are things that take a long time to understand and be educated about. You know what I learned in time while looking at the different Twitter accounts and how people react and how people from different communities present narratives in order to justify their deeds? A lot of people don't even care about most stuff. And they, they don't really care about a technology to the extent that it helps the protocol, but think about short-term or mid-term gains in terms of maximizing their investments. And I think that it might be useful in terms of bringing more money into the market. And I think that these people who get the blame wouldn't invest in Bitcoin anyway. So we like to blame Coinbase sometimes for listing all the bad coins and listing XRP and allowing people to get the illusion that they are investing in the next big asset that's going to go to the moon. And what's the meme about XRP that is going to reach $379 or something? <laughs> something, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that these people would be attracted by these projects anyway and would never get into Bitcoin. And I guess this argument gets back to the theory of the gateway drug because sooner or later they're going to be disappointed and they're going to get wrecked. They're going to lose their investments. And if they are still interested and they acquire some kind of knowledge, then they might turn their heads to Bitcoin and realize that this is the real deal. Or else they're going to just make some speculators richer and move on with their lives and do something else. But one argument that Roger Veer uses all the time is that BTC has lost dominance on the market. And it's all because the blocks did not increase to allow scalability and the devs were too stubborn to allow for new implementations to be made. And he likes to say that Vitalik wanted to build Ethereum on top of Bitcoin and they did not allow him because it was a bad idea. And... I don't think this is, I think he finds some causes, but they're not 
causal in this sense. They are just some phenomena that are there. They might have influenced what we call the dominance, which in itself is a bad metric because it's measured in terms of market cap, which is also a bad metric. But it doesn't measure volume. It's about how much money is put into that particular coin at that exact time. Yeah, market capitalization is a really stupid metric in the sense that it can, it's easy to game it. Um, it has market liquidity is far more important. The buy support is far more important. Um, but, you know, you look at something like um, Ethereum, for example, and um, I don't think Vitalik was ever going to build it on top of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, maybe, but that didn't, you know, just because um, there was a lot of people who wanted to build a lot of things on Bitcoin, and I'm sorry that they didn't get to do that. Uh, but, you know, I don't believe Ethereum has any value. Uh, I, I don't, I, when you keep looking at the narratives, the narratives of Ethereum constantly change. And when it was first launched, it was, it was being marketed as the world computer. And then the next thing was that it was going to be these, you know, the DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization. And then, uh, you know, then it went to dApps and then dApps turned out to be a total flop because they have terrible user experience um, and they're fundamentally unscalable on chain. And then now the new one is DeFi, like, you know, decentralized finance, which is another just marketing buzzword. It's always a new buzzword with these people every single time. It's not real. In a, it's not real innovation. It's not real application or use. It's just, it's just speculation and marketing buzzwords. And, um, you know, so many people, it's actually incredibly irresponsible to be selling this technology to anyone as a solution for something when it's fundamentally insecure in the first place. You can't build something, you shouldn't be building on top of, of something like Ethereum when, when that protocol is going to continue to hard fork and it has tremendous, like, governance problems. Um, governance was never a problem in Bitcoin. The problem was... The problem was essentially that, that people were trying to force something to be used for something that it naturally really doesn't, doesn't scale at and doesn't scale for a number of reasons. Socially, it's unscalable. Um, you will have disagreements. Look, even when we had big blocks, now there's two coins with big blocks. Why? Because they disagreed. In the future, there's going to be more of those Bitcoin forks off of those. There, eventually, there will be, be it Bitcoin SV or Satoshi's Vision people who will disagree with these other people and they will fork their own. And they will say their coin is the real Bitcoin. Uh, and there will be, now they're talking about Ethereum 2.0. I'm sorry, what? Like, why are you building a new blockchain and you're just going to like port everything from the old one to the new one? Like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. This, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what? You, you don't find anyone in the real business world that actually is building real applications for, for consumer use cases out in the, in the wild, actual businesses that have any use for any of any of these things. They don't have any use for this stuff. I know as a matter of fact, I work in industries that have, um, that have been pitched um, these technologies. And I can tell you as a matter of fact, that people that are marketing them have no idea what they're even marketing. Um, they have no idea the problems they're trying to solve. They don't even understand the technology. So um, you just have a, it's sort of like a perfect storm of ignorance um, and uh, marketing scammers and uh, really a lot of people who frankly, um, they don't have anything better to do. They don't, they, they're not out there building solutions. They're not out there doing meaningful work. They probably, there's a lot of people in the crypto space that are unemployed and they don't, you know, they're, they're trying to make money. And one of the easiest ways to make money is to just try to buy an altcoin and, and try to, you know, speculate that maybe it goes up in value. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, these use cases that, you know, that, to, that like Roger Veer is constantly going on about, I think it's totally false that the market dominance dropped because of, 
Um, the scaling debate, I think that's, 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 a, that's something that Roger Beer will use in retrospect because, um, because it's, because it, it sounds like it, it sounds, it sells well to newcomers. Like newbies will look at that and they will think, Oh, that's why, that's why Bitcoin has lost dominance. Well, no, it didn't lose dominance because of that. It's, lost dominance because there's an unlimited number of altcoins. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Dominance measured in market capitalization is irrelevant when there's an infinite number of altcoins. Um, so, you know, the dominate, the dominance, I'm not that interested in the dominance, to be honest with you. Um, I fundamentally believe that the people who are looking for a store of value and sound and sound monetary policy and true decentralization and long-term low type reference store of value, I believe those people are going to move towards Bitcoin I don't really care what the other people do. They are welcome to go speculate and experiment, but eventually they will come to the realization that uh, none of this is useful if you can't store value. I really agree with you. But at the same time, I want to point out that the money that went into Ethereum would have never gotten into Bitcoin. Yeah, I think you're right. They probably probably not. have different philosophies and they attract different types of people. And Ethereum is attractive to the Silicon Valley type and the Wall Street guys who think that they can tokenize everything and put it on the blockchain with minimal efforts. And it also attracts scammers and none of these can be done with Bitcoin. And I I guess Bitcoin has a stronger immune system. There is no way that five people can get inside a room and decide to delay a a network upgrade in the case of Bitcoin, that there isn't even a hard fork that's getting planned unless we need to have some kind of emergency to change the mining algorithm, which has been, I guess, the discussion since the first few days of Bitcoin, when they said that the cryptography should protect the network and the moment when SHA-256 gets broken, they're going to change it. And also, I think... The developers also have some kind of quantum computing proof system for wallets for whenever we need to move on. So that's the inevitable moment when we are going to have a hard fork, which is necessary and is justified. It's not like we have had a small minority who act as the elites and they decide by themselves when the right moment is to do some kind of upgrade. And I know that Vitalik is a smart guy and he has a lot of understanding of the phenomena and he's brilliant at his age that he was able to comprehend all that information and build something that we may agree that is not useful but is still impressive as an implementation. I think a lot of people have built a lot of interesting systems in uh, the blockchain space and they just didn't get the um, they didn't get the level of investment that Vitalik got. Um, so, and I think it was because, a con, you know, there were, there were many people involved in, in Ethereum. Um, and yeah, they were in Silicon Valley and they, they, they had access to a large pool of capital, but there's definitely, there's definitely been a lot of projects in the blockchain space that I think are whatever that are interesting. Uh, conceptually, they just didn't get that investment because it was just a matter of, they didn't know those, the right people and they weren't in the right circles. But it's, there's, to me, there's nothing special about Vitalik that someone else wouldn't have done um, or attempted. Uh, a Turing complete you know, blockchain or whatever, a virtual machine. It's, it's not like um, that he was the only person that could have done that. It's just that 
early developers of Bitcoin said that was a stupid, pointless idea, and so they didn't pursue it. So it's fine that he pursued it. I think somebody else would have pursued it as well, and, and people are pursuing those things. Um, however, you know, yeah, I mean, he's a, I, I suppose he's a smart person per se. I just, uh, I just think there's an incredible disconnect between um, people who run businesses and understand the business world versus, you know, theoretical um, ideas and applications. Um, so, you know, it's probably the same problem that a lot, like in the dot-com boom, there was a lot of people that were pitching dot-com and internet for something that it actually wasn't that realistic for at that time. Um, but, you know, I, I guess, uh, I guess I'm fine with the experimentation. What I have a problem with is that you have people like Vitalik who they use their position to attack Bitcoin and they, I mean, in the last Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash fork, you know, like Vitalik has repeatedly taken Roger Beer's side many times. Um, he seems to be socially like inept or completely ignoring the fact that Roger Beer has said horrible things about Bitcoin developers. Uh, Roger Beer accuses people of doing all sorts of things uh, that are not true. Roger Beer lies a lot and you don't see, you don't see Vitalik calling Roger Beer out. You know, you don't see that happening. So I really question the ethics and morals of a lot of people in that community because I think they use Bitcoin when it's, when it's convenient for them. They, they, they pretend to like Bitcoin when it's convenient for them, but then they turn around and they attack it um, when it's convenient for them. Yeah, I, I guess Vitalik is under a lot of scrutiny. And despite his intelligence, he, he got into this kind of situation where he has a lot of responsibility and he has to account to VCs who put a lot of money into his project. So he has to fulfill these expectations and deliver of working product. And in this regard, I think Ethereum works more as a business, whereas Bitcoin is a protocol that simply functions and the fact that it doesn't receive any kind of upgrades in a given amount of time is not a bug, but a feature and a demonstration of the capability and the sustainability of this protocol. Whereas in the case of Ethereum, it's a whole different animal. They expect to scale, they expect to have all these kind of pretty useless but crazy decentralized applications to be running. And supposedly, there's supposedly, a lot of money to yeah. it. They're not actually decentralized. That's part of the problem. I mean, the applications might appear to be decentralized, but when you actually go down and break it down, these applications are likely using a third-party service to, to actually run the application. So, you know, what happens is you end up, you end up getting so far away from, from running your own node, you get so far away from the actual decentralized thing that you really just end up with a sort of like semi-decentralized copy of existing applications that doesn't actually work very well. Uh, for what it's trying to do. So, um, and I think that this is just a, a part of the disconnect. You know, Vitalik doesn't, he doesn't believe in proof of work. He believes in, he wants to switch to proof of stake. This is, um, there's been, a, there's a number of problems with that, as we know. Um, there's, there, the problems are insurmountable, actually. Um, there's no real alternative uh, to, to proof of work out there. Um, and, and so, you know, these ideas, unfortunately, they, they appeal to newcomers and they appeal to a lot of newbies because they they don't they don't understand the security model. They don't understand the risks. They can't think long term. Um, and a lot of them are very susceptible to being sold marketing schemes, right? Like these are these are marketing schemes that they are sold. 
um, and they don't they don't really take the time to analyze um, uh, the long term security and models of these of these networks and what is really at stake is is the big question like what is what is really what are we really you know what's the real problems that this is solving um, and you know if you, if you can't if you can't ultimately use that system in a fully decentralized way then there's really no point doing it in the first place in my opinion I think right now that you mentioned these facts, I, I just came across this thought that I think Ethereum is essentially a very postmodernist project where the technical truth is less important than the narrative and the story that they want to build and the beliefs that they have a, as a community. They want to believe that proof of stake works. They want to believe that their sharding implementation is functional. They did receive a terrible peer review from academics and technical specialists who reviewed their plans, but they still try to believe and they, they present themselves as these messianic figures who want to save the protocol and bring something better and always improve. And as we speak right now, I think they might be having that Constantinople hard fork. So yeah, as opposed to Bitcoin, which is all about facts and something that can be verified in an objective way, Ethereum is about constructing a narrative. That's why we ended up having projects like Tron, which claim to be the Ethereum killer. And they're all about marketing. Also EOS and everything that came after it. They, they are all about the story behind them, but less about the technology. And that's why they get pumped by the marketing teams. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And these people are holding a lot of this cryptocurrency. And so they are heavily invested in making this narrative work. Yeah, and in the case of Bitcoin, it doesn't care about how we understand it, how we perceive it, what we want it to be. It just works and it's there and we can use it. And whenever we wake up from this idealistic state where maybe, maybe that proof of stake is a good idea for the environment, but if you want to have this great goal of having uncensorable money that is independent and not reliant on any government of the world, then it's useful to have Bitcoin on a proof of work system. And maybe that it's better than Ethereum gives up on hashing. And I'm not sure if these machines that currently run Ethereum mining will be able to switch to Bitcoin in a way that is profitable. But when they say that they're moving to proof of stake, sometimes I think, okay, that's good for Bitcoin. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great for Bitcoin. I think they're I think that they're going to uh, if they ever pull it off, they'll realize that they made a huge mistake. Um, but you know that's neither here nor there. I, I actually just I simply just don't care about that project in the sense that it's irrelevant. I, I have no use case for it. I, I've never in six years I've never found a use for it, so I I don't use it. <laughs> yeah, I got interested in it early on. I read about it. It seems so nice and so interesting and had all these 
different applications that it's very hard to define. Up to this point, I'm still not sure what it's supposed to do other than smart contracts, which I can understand. But in terms of decentralized applications, okay, what is their value proposition and use case? How are they supposed to scale to actually compete with the centralized solutions that we already have? And why does Ethereum scale in a way that makes it redundant to call itself decentralized? I mean, we might as well switch to EOS, which actually supports more, what do you call them, programming languages. And it's easy for developers to move their projects to the protocol and make them what they call decentralized, but they have just a few block producers who are like the curators of the network and they keep on validating the transactions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Ethereum faces a number of competitors because um, if they're trying to compete on that front, then they have to compete with all those altcoins and there's going to be more altcoins in the future. So um, I don't see it as a long-term store value or, or viable project for personally. Uh, I think it's, it's maybe led a lot of people to me down the wrong path. Um, I don't care if they use it. I highly recommend companies do not use their technology at all. It's a huge waste of time. Um, and I don't know of any, I don't really know of any companies out there that are, they're using this in a way that is actually generating any real use, like where actual customers are actually using it because frankly, it doesn't really solve the problems that people keep claiming it solves. So. I think we have been talking for over an hour and I'm not sure how many people will be listening up to this point, but I, I want to ask you a question which concerns your vision on Bitcoin. And where do you think that we will be 10 years from now in terms of technology? And what makes you most excited in terms of development for Bitcoin? Um, that's, yeah, that's a great question. I know you asked John, John Carvalho that question. You might've asked all your guests that question. Um, uh, the, I think that, um, store of value is incredibly important. Um, you know, the, in 10 years from now, I really have no idea where Bitcoin's going to be because where it has come in just two years is phenomenal. And, uh, what we're seeing right now with, new technologies that are coming out um, to enable um, really to enable like the lightning network. I think that um, the lightning network offers a whole new business model. Um, I'm really bullish on that in the short term um, in terms of enabling a whole new set of applications, um, which we're already seeing developers using the lightning network in ways to do, to do micropayment applications. Um, and I think we don't actually fully understand what, how revolutionary it's going to be until um, we're a little bit later stages of the protocol until there's more features that people need. So, uh, but 10 years from now, um, I see, I definitely see Bitcoin being worth a lot more money. Um, I see Bitcoin mining becoming, um, becoming incredibly difficult um, because over time the, with mining, the, um, the efficiencies can, that are squeezed out of new hardware gets slimmer and slimmer. So it gets harder to produce ASICs um, that, that can compete with, you know, that, can, um, that have large gains in hash rate. Um, you know, essentially, we are pushing Moore's law to the limit. Like mining power, mining ASICs are pushing the limits of computer technology. So 
I think it'll be very interesting to see as the margins on um, incremental gains can, continues to diminish. I think we will see Bitcoin mining will become much more a function of power companies and power people who have access to very cheap um, and uh, stranded power. So like hydroelectric power, um, stranded gas power, um, you know, solar energy. So I'm really interested to see um, in 10 years, like sort of how, um, how Bitcoin mining will get integrated into power production around the, around the world. Um, I think that the, that, you know, so yeah, so I guess in 10 years from now, I see, I do see Bitcoin mining becoming an integral part of power production um, economics. And I also see, um, um, I just see a whole, I see the world using Bitcoin. I see governments using Bitcoin 10 years from now. I see central governments um, hoarding Bitcoin. I see companies using Bitcoin as a hedge and store of value. I, I think that we don't, I just think it's really hard to know, but those are the things that I see in the future. Well, that's very optimistic of you. And I guess it would be also useful right now to mention how you can be contacted on Twitter and how people can read your articles because you clearly have a lot of insights and your views should be read and spread across the enthusiasts of Bitcoin. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, my Twitter is uh, brick string tech right now. Um, uh, you know, I came across that, that, that name. It was kind of a meme that was passed around um, because a game show was, <laughs> was using it. And I thought, Oh, that's a great, that's a great, um, sort of way to sort of, um, make fun of the, um, the blockchain industry or the blockchain narrative. You know, at the, at the end of the day, I think that if you're going to be in this space, you should be doing it because you want to have fun. And I also think that, um, you know, in the, that also pseudo anonymity, um, is, is an important thing. I don't necessarily see, you know, a reason to like use, always use your real name and everything. And part of being on the internet is sort of having an identity as well. That isn't necessarily your own identity. Um, and you can have many different types of identities, but yeah, I would love for people to come read my articles. Um, if you just go to brickstring.tech on your web browser, um, that'll redirect to my medium blog and you can read my articles there. Okay. Mr. Brickstring who wants to remain anonymous. Thank you very much for this interview, and I'm happy that we got to talk. And Thanks so much, Bob. Maybe at some point in the future, we can just have more discussions as, you know, we find out more, we make new discoveries, we have many more events and phenomena which take place, and our views adjust accordingly. And I, I hope that I will be having this podcast for a long time, even though, financially speaking, I'm... I'm taking a loss with this one. I could be making money while I'm recording this, but it's useful at the same time for me to learn new stuff, new insights. But this, this was a long monologue that probably nobody will listen to. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah, you've done a great job with your podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I try, but just so you know, if I get any donations for this particular episode, you're going to get 50% of everything in BTC. And you can use it for anything that you like. It's part of your sovereignty. <laughs> Thanks so much, Vlad. Your time is valuable. So goodbye. Goodbye, Vlad. Thanks so much again.